0: Well, happy Reformation Day. Huh? I know everyone else is celebrating Halloween, but for us, it's Reformation Day. Uh, It was on this date, October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther, the Augustinian monk, uh, hammered the 95 Thesis on the door of the church in Wittenberg with the intent of reforming the church. In fact, the title of the 95 Thesis officially is this, Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. And this is the opening line of the 95 Thesis. Martin Luther put on the door of the church in Wittenberg. He says this, out of love for truth and from the desire to elucidate it, the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts in Sacred Theology, an ordinary lecturer therein at Wittenberg, intends to defend the following statements and dispute on them and in that place. And so back in ancient times, you know, or not ancient, but medieval times, they didn't have uh, uh, Facebook or social media. So like if you had a grievance, you didn't just like post it on social media. In fact, I found a little slide here that uh, reminds us it's Reformation Day about Facebook. Posting grant, rants long before Facebook. He is hammering that 95 thesis. Don't forget today's Reformation Day. He had 95 grievances, concerns uh, that he was g- bringing against the church with really the intent of trying to start a conversation to ultimately lead to a debate. That's how they resolved conflicts. They put up their concerns of the church, hammered on the door, and then <clears throat> ultimately hope to have a, a conversation. In fact, uh, if Martin Luther were here today and seeing how commercialized Halloween is and how everybody likes to knock on doors to get some free candy, I think he might have this reaction. So you pound on doors to get candy. How cute. (laughs) Martin Luther pounded on the door to change the world, right? I mean, we we pound on the door to get candy. He's pounding on the door to to change the world. And that's really what the 95 Thesis did. It helped lead and launch the Protestant Reformation that really changed Europe. Uh, forever, and Presbyterians were born out of that Reformation. And if you read the 95 Theses, you'll see that his principal concern is with the selling of indulgences. Now, what is an indulgence? Well, the medieval Roman Catholic Church was actually trying to sell indulgences with the purpose of trying to raise money to help rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, if you've ever been to that beautiful uh, building. But they were trying to rebuild that, so they were selling indulgences. And basically, they said that if you purchase an indulgence then your dead family member who's in purgatory will no longer have to suffer and they'll get to go straight to heaven. Well, as Martin Luther read the Bible in the original Hebrew and in the original Greek, a couple things came up. He couldn't find the word indulgence, nor could he find purgatory. And so the Reformers basically said, you know, the church has lost its way and that our ultimate authority in faith and life should be the scriptures, sola scriptura. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, we know that we've been going through a sermon series on the five solas or the five cries of the Reformation Uh, That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and Scripture alone is our authority in faith and life as we seek to give all glory to God alone. Now, where did the Reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin get this idea that, well, Scripture alone is our authority, that it has this inherent authority, that it is, in fact, the inspired Word of God? Well, to find out where the Reformers got that idea, I would encourage you to turn your Bibles, your Red Pew Bibles, to 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, it may be found on page 1269 of your Red Pew Bible, Second Timothy, chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired Paul to put pen to paper that we might have your written word today. We pray, O Lord, that as we read this letter that he wrote to Timothy, as Timothy was trying to lead the church in Ephesus, while Paul himself was in a prison in Rome, we pray that we might read this word and we might hear your word to us today, knowing how Paul was trying to encourage Timothy. May these words encourage us as well. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. Listen to God's word. But as for you, Paul writes, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I want to pause there just for a moment. Uh, Paul writes, but as for you, Now, in order to understand why he says, but, as for you, you need to read all of 2 Timothy. And as you read 2 Timothy, you can see that Paul has been instructing Timothy, who's trying to lead the church in Ephesus, that he has to be wary or aware of the fact that things are gonna go from bad to worse. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter three, verses one to seven, Paul writes these words. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into Households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That's a pretty bleak commentary on humanity, is it not? But it's kind of true. I mean, you read that first that people are going to be lovers of self. Aren't most people pretty selfish naturally? Lovers of money, does that not describe our society and culture? We live in a consumerist, materialist culture where where people are measured by what they have and and we're constantly coveting what others have. At least marketers want us to do that. Proud, arrogant. Isn't that the way humanity is? So how do we avoid becoming like these people? Well, the first bit of advice that uh, Paul gives, of course, is he says avoid such people. Uh, and that's consistent with Paul, what Paul wrote in First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, when he points out that bad company ruins good morals. If you tend to hang out with the wicked, if you tend to hang out with people who are lovers of money and, and proud and arrogant, then you're probably going to become proud and arrogant and a lover of money as well. But the truth is we can't just avoid the sinful because we'll, we're sinners as well. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have a, a sinful nature that, left to its own, is prone to wander from God. So how can we check that? keep that sinful nature in check and not become these kinds of people who are proud of of ourselves or lovers of money, lovers of ourselves, arrogant, abusive. But as for you, Paul writes, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is encouraging Timothy to continue in what you've learned. And we know from earlier in the letter that Paul's mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, uh, that Timothy's uh, mother, Eunice, and, and and Timothy's grandmother, Lois, were Jewish. And so Timothy himself was raised on the Old Testament, the sacred writings that Paul references here. And Paul has been encouraging him to see how all of the sacred writings in the Old Testament ultimately point to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, Yes, it's true the Old Testament we have was written centuries before Jesus was even born, but scholars tell us that there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. And so for Paul, the Old Testament ultimately points to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, who was the suffering servant that we read in Isaiah 53, who was pierced for our transgressions. Paul sees how we are saved by faith alone as Abraham was declared righteous, not by what he did, but rather by what he believed that all of Scripture, as we look at it, ultimately points to Jesus. And we know that Scripture is authoritative and that it is instructive to us because of what Paul writes in verse 16 and 17. For all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now you may notice every Sunday after I read the scripture, I I quote Isaiah 40 verse 8 where I say, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Why do I do that? I'll tell you why I do that. Well, when I was in college, I went to Trinity University in San Antonio and I went to the First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio where my wife grew up. And uh, Dr. Louis Sabenden, who was the pastor there for 30 years, every time he would finish reading the text, he would always quote Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And initially, when I heard that, I thought, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. I didn't hear that in Midland growing up. I thought, that's pretty neat. But after four years of it, you know, I kind of thought, shouldn't he come up with a new line? I mean, shouldn't there be something else to say after that? But what happened over time is those words went from here to here. So that when I found myself in a crisis, in the midst of a tough season of life, I knew that the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord, and it's the inspired word of God. Or or as we read in our text just a moment ago, it is God breathed, breathed out by God. The Greek word that's translated as breathed out there, or as the New Revised Standard Version says, inspired by God, or, or a New American Standard Version says inspired, that Greek word is theopneustes. And it's actually a combination of two words, so I think the ESV has a better translation because the first word is theos, which means God, and it's combined with panuo, which means to breathe, wants to breathe. In fact, panuo has the same root as pneuma, which means spirit, wind. The idea is that it's the Holy Spirit who has inspired or breathed out God's word as men have put pen to paper. And Peter, the apostle, who was the rock on which Christ built his church, says something very similar in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, where it says, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by The Holy Spirit. Peter and Paul recognize that it's the Holy Spirit who's been moving them to write. It's the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word of God. But how can we we be so sure that it's the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul or or for Peter? I mean, that's that's what they think. How can we know for sure? What's interesting, John Calvin uh, in the 1500s, just a little bit after Martin Luther, uh, explains to us how we can be so sure in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. John Calvin's kind of the founder of the Presbyterian Church. He was a part of the Swiss Reformation. Uh, Luther, of course, is part of the German Reformation. Calvin writes this in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, book one, chapter seven. The highest proof of scripture derives in general from the fact that God in person speaks in it. For as God alone is a fit witness of himself and his word, so also the word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit, by the inner testimony of the Spirit. Calvin goes on to write and explain that the same Holy Spirit who convicts us that Jesus is Lord is the same Holy Spirit that allows us to see that as we read the Scriptures, we are reading the very Word of God, that it was inspired by God. And if you think about the way that the, the canon, the, the, the books of the Bible ultimately came together, the Old Testament and the New Testament that we have today, when you think about the story that's behind that, It truly is remarkable how the Holy Spirit was moving in that process. For in 367 AD, when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, we have a letter from Athanasius, who was a bishop, uh, explaining and writing and listing the books that we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, how do we know that the Old Testament we have is is the Word of God? Well, Jesus himself affirms the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew Bible that he was raised on. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, uh, verse 17... 18, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, which is like an apostrophe. It's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, an iota. Not an iota, not a dot. In the Hebrew alphabet, dots are used to create vowel sounds. Not a dot. That's the smallest stroke of a pen in the Hebrew alphabet. Old Testament's in Hebrew. New Testament's in Greek. Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus affirms all of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and saying, I have come to fulfill all of it. Those 300 prophecies about me, I'm going to fulfill all of it. In fact, if you've never read the entire Bible before, I would encourage you to begin in the Gospel of Mark. I know the temptation is, you know, like most books, you read at the beginning and go all the way to the end. If you start Genesis, you may get, do okay, but get to Leviticus, you're going to die, you're going to stop, you're going to like, oh, forget about this. Start with the Gospel of Mark. Because we know that Mark was the first gospel written. Uh, it was written around 64 AD. And actually, uh, Mark was a missionary companion of the Apostle Paul, and later he was a pupil of Peter. And so Peter was the one who told Mark what to write. After Mark wrote his gospel, then read Matthew, which was the second gospel written, then Luke, then read John. Because these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four gospels all talk about Jesus, who as John points out at the beginning of his gospel, is the ultimate revelation to us of who God is. He's the Word of God, the Word made flesh. John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word made His dwelling among us. He took on flesh so that we might know who God is in the flesh. Sure, the people of God had the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the Shema, the most important commandment of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And they had the second most important commandment, in Leviticus 19, love your neighbors yourself. But we didn't have anybody show us how to really do that until Jesus came, the one and only Son of God, fully God, fully man, the Word made flesh. And so we should read the Scriptures because He came to fulfill all of it through the lens of Christ, Karl Barth, that great twentieth century theologian, uses this idea of the threefold word of God. We've got a picture to show you that. In the middle is is the incarnate word of God. If we want to know who God is, we begin with Jesus. Jesus is the one we worship, we look to him. And the written word of God, the scriptures testify to who Jesus was and what he did and who he is. But most of us hear the word of God before we actually read the word of God. We hear the proclaimed word of God as we proclaim it every Sunday. And that's how most people in the ancient world learned about Jesus was through the proclamation of the word. You see, back then, they didn't have a printing press, and so every Bible, every epistle was, had to be handwritten. And so it was very expensive. Very people had their own copies of the Bible. One church would have one copy of Romans, and they would read it during worship, and then they would discuss it, but they only had one. And so you had to, you had to uh, proclaim the word of God, and, and then you would begin to memorize the word of God and allow it to sink in. And it's interesting, as Paul was writing the word of God, as he was writing these letters, he had a sense that it was the Holy Spirit who was inspiring him. And so he wanted to make sure his letters were not simply just shared with one group of people, but that it was shared with others. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27, where Paul writes this. I put under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Paul has written this, this text, and he knows that it's the Holy Spirit who has inspired him, and so that should be shared with others. Paul says something very similar. In Colossians 4:16, he says, "And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea." Paul recognized the holy inspiration of the letters that he was writing. so he said, you need, to, "You need to share this with others." In fact, as he preached the Word of God and he wrote the Word of God, he knew that it was the Word of God, not his own words, but it was the word of God. We see this in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse th- 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul knew he was preaching the word of God. Paul knew that he was writing the inspired word of God. Now just so do we don't think Paul was full of himself and a little arrogant, you know, thinking that I've got the word of God, no one else does. Others recognized that what Paul was writing and saying was the word of God. For Peter himself in his letter, his second letter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, writes this, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Wisdom was given to him. It wasn't something Paul generated by himself. It was the wisdom that, well, these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. As they do the other scriptures. That's a huge line. As they do the other scriptures. Peter here is putting Paul's letter on par with the rest of the scriptures, the holy, holy inspired word of God. And if you read Galatians, you know this is a big deal because Peter and Paul didn't always get along on everything, right? But even Peter recognized that the words that Paul was preaching, the words that, and the letters that Paul was writing were the inspired word of God. And so, ultimately, when the church closed the canon in the fourth century, it wasn't like they were making some big new declaration. They were simply affirming what the church had already recognized on its own by the power of the Holy Spirit. That as they read these letters, the same Holy Spirit that convicted them that Jesus was Lord, they could see that this is in fact the inspired Word of God. Bruce Metzger, in this great book, *The New Testament: Its Background, Growth, and Content*, who was a, a professor of mine at Princeton Seminary, and actually he was the chief editor of the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. So just a second, if you're, if you're the chief editor of an entire translation of the Bible, you're pretty smart, right? And uh, he's actually interviewed in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, chapter 3. Bruce Metzger writes this about the canon of Scripture and how it came to be the Bible we have. What is really remarkable is that <coughs> though the fringes of the New Testament canon remained unsettled, a high degree of unanimity concerning the greater part of the New Testament canon was attained within the first two centuries among the very diverse and scattered congregations, not only in the Mediterranean world, but also over an area extending from Britain to Mesopotamia. So, when the churches were finally able to gather together, churches from all over the known world were able to gather together in Rome and say, "Well, what scriptures have been you you been using as the Word of God for your gathering and worship?" People from Britain would say, "We've been using Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians." Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, Second, all the way to Revelation. Unbelievable. And the churches in Mesopotamia and in Africa and all over the known world were using the same text because the Holy Spirit was speaking with one voice that this is the inspired Word of God. Now, it's true that over time, archaeologists have found gospels like the Gospel of Thomas, which is an ancient uh, manuscript they found. But none of the earliest churches were using the Gospel of Thomas Because as you read the Gospel of Thomas, it's interesting, Bruce Metzger actually spent a whole year translating these original manuscripts uh, into English, the Gospel of Thomas, and he was interviewed by Lee Strobel. Do you think the Gospel of Thomas should be included in the Bible? And he said, absolutely not. It's not consistent with what the the synoptic Gospels that we have of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had to say. And it was written 100 years later. Now The Gospels that we have were all written in the first century. Everything in the New Testament was written in the first century where eyewitnesses were able to corroborate what had been spoken and what had been written. So they speak with one voice of the lordship of jesus christ we can know with full assurance that all scripture is god-breathed useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so the person of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work so how does the scriptures equip us exactly how can it train us how can it correct us we simply need to read it well it is good to start with reading it but as emily pointed out in the text that we just read from psalms it's even better if we can meditate on it, even memorize it. In Psalm 1, we read this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, the Hebrew word for meditate there is haggah. Hagah it means meditate. It can also mean murmur, like you murmur something to yourself, like reciting the Word of God over and over it can also mean to chew on. In fact, I really like the way Eugene Peterson, who was a Presbyterian minister, in his uh, English translation of the Bible, uh, The Message, a paraphrase, he writes, you thrill to God's word, you chew on Scripture day and night. You chew on the word of God. Like a, like a cow has to chew on the cud, you know, they've got multiple stomachs to tear, eat up that grass. We have to chew on the word of God. We have to meditate on it both day and night. So it'll move from here to here that we naturally have it memorized, and it's guiding our thoughts and, and guiding our actions and even guiding our words. I found the best way to memorize Scripture is to, is to memorize it and write it on an index card, then put it in my pocket, and as I'm standing in line at the grocery store or find myself in the midst of something, I can pull it out and re- read it, go over it again, and allow it to penetrate my heart. Just as Isaiah 40, verse 8 from Lewis and Benin has penetrated my heart. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And no matter what you're going through, this season of life, as hard as it might be, the Word of God is there to guide you. Do we spend the time we need to, to meditate on the Word of God? Because if we will, we won't become the kind of people that Paul warns about in 2 Timothy 3. Don't be the kind of people who, who love money and love themselves and are arrogant and proud. No, the, the Scriptures will humble us and guide us to become the men and women God is calling us to be. How does this work? For example, let's take the topic of money. Now, we live in a consumerist, materialist culture, We're constantly being inundated by mass media and news and and, uh, television everything, you know, to buy this or to purchase that. And if you get this, then you'll finally be happy. It's very easy to be a lover of money in the United States, in fact, the Tenth Commandment is probably the hardest thing for Americans to obey. Coveting, right? Because we're constantly told to covet. If I drive a, Lincoln, drive a Lincoln Town Car, I'll look as good as Matthew McConaughey. I'm told. I test drive it. It still doesn't work. I don't look as good as Matthew McConaughey. I haven't changed a bit. God bless Matthew McConaughey, but that's not going to work for me. So how can we make sure that we allow the Word of God to guide us in our understanding of, of money? Well, the Bible says a lot about money. In fact, you may have noticed in our call to worship, we looked at Psalm 24. And David writes in Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth is, everything that we have has been created by God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We are a gift from God. Our life is a gift from God. The fact that we have minds that allow us to get jobs, that allow us to earn money, is a gift from God. So ultimately, God owns everything. All of it is His. And as you read through the Bible, we can see that the, the guidance that we're given on giving is to give a tithe as an act of worship to God. Now, a tithe is 10%, and Malachi, the prophet, challenges the people of Israel in Malachi 3, verses 6 to 10, he challenges us as well with these words. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? You are robbing, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe, the full 10% into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This is one of the few times God says, test me on this. Give the full tithe. See if I will not bless you. Now, I don't want you to think that God's some kind of vending machine, that if you give, God's gonna give you back the same amount. But the fact is that as we give, we find the words of Jesus in Acts 20, verse 35 to be true. That it is more blessed to give than receive. That as we give, as we invest in the work of God's kingdom, our heart follows. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus instructs us not to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy but rather store up treasures in heaven as we give back to god god is able to take what we give like the little boy gave his lunch to jesus in john six five barley loaves and two fish and jesus was able to multiply that to minister to so many many more uh, this last wednesday night we opened up the a and o house for the first time it was so great to see that kids were all in different costumes Celebrating Reformation Day, I'm sure, not Halloween, right? But uh, anyway, it was great to see so many kids in this great Ano house. And as you get to know the kids, you realize we're not ministering to just our kids. We're ministering to kids within the whole community of Amarillo. Kids from all different high schools, kids from all different backgrounds, gathered together in that house to hear the inspired Word of God so they might be equipped and directed and led by the words of Scripture. And as you read the Word of God as a church, It's true that in the New Testament they don't talk a lot about tithing. However, Jesus certainly affirms the tithing. In Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus says this. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The Pharisees were good at tithing, giving that biblical 10%, the full 10%, but they had left out the weightier matters of justice and mercy. Well, we as the church want to do what Jesus affirms us to do. We want to tithe. And so if you look at our operating budget that you'll find in our Celebrate magazine, uh, we have, we're committed to giving above a tithe because they don't talk a lot about tithing in the New Testament because the first century church gave well above a tithe. In fact, sometimes they gave everything to the work of the church. Barnabas does this in Acts chapter 4 because he, he was so grateful for all that God had done for him. As he looked at the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, he saw that we serve a very generous, a very loving God who gave us his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If we serve such a generous God, then we should seek to give back to that God, to see how God might use what we give to to minister to so many, many more. And so we're committed to being a tithing church where we will always give at least 10% of our budget to local and global missions. We even did this on the Capitol campaign You may remember that the capital campaign for GROW was to renovate the children's wing, to build the playgrounds, to get the north ramp set up, and to build the new A.O. house, and all that was about $5 million. But we raised an additional $500,000, or an additional 10%, for local and global missions, which allowed us to refurbish a building on 6th Street in the midst of the San Jacinto neighborhood, it's called Murray's House, that multiple ministries are using to help minister to that community, to help make disciples of Jesus, so they might hear the word of God, the truth of God's love for them. And we're using that same money overseas as well. In fact, if you look at the back of the magazine, you'll see that we have um, many missionaries, over 45 that we support both locally and globally. It's truly amazing that when we take what we've been given and we give it back to God, God's able to use it and multiply its impact. Now, I don't know what anybody here gives unless you decide to tell me. That's really between you, the Lord, and our business office. But I know what my wife and I have pledged to give. We're gonna give a full 10%, a tithe of what we make to the church, to the operating budget, because we have always been blessed at the end of the year to see how God has taken what we've given and used it to minister to so many, many more. It's all scripture. It's God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness, so we, the people of God, might be thoroughly equipped for his good work. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, according to Paul. Uh, He writes to Timothy. May we not have that same love. We want to have a love for God, not a love for money. And the greatest antidote to greed, it's giving. May we give out of gratitude for God's love for us. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, your word is truly inspired by your spirit. It moves in our hearts, it's sharper than a double edged sword. It penetrates dividing heart, mind, and soul and spirit. I pray, Lord, that as we read your word and as we prayerfully consider what it is your calling is to give and commit to for next year, that you would speak to each one of us, that we might be joyful givers and gratitude for your giving to us. And God, I thank you for the model that we have from the earliest church who gave sacrificially. They gave generously because they recognize we serve a generous God, as your word tells us, a God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Oh Lord, help us to be generous and gratitude for your generous love to us. It's in your son's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.